Prince of Peace is what we're going to look at today. In Isaiah, uh, in chapter 8, he records that the people and the leaders of Judah were having a difficult time. Syria was making moves in the region, and an eventual attack seemed inevitable. When we get to Isaiah chapter 8, it's described as a time of darkness. There was a gloom in the land, and it wasn't a gloom just because of the uh, threat of Assyria. And it wasn't a reference to uh, the greater Rochester area weather, uh, but primarily refers to a spiritual condition of the people, and particularly of its leaders, King Ahaz and the leaders and priests. And those very leaders were promoting the consulting of spirits and other gods and the dead on behalf of the living. God tells Isaiah, don't listen to them, because such people have, quote, no dawn. That is, they were spiritually darkened. You find that in Isaiah chapter 8. So there's a threat from the outside, from Assyria, and there's a spiritual threat from the inside, the inside of the nation. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 9, where there's a great change in tone, one going from gloom to hope. Isaiah 9, 2 through 5. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being our Prince of Peace. And thank you for bringing peace to us. May we gain some understanding of everything that that means this morning. And Father, we ask that you minister your peace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So you probably remember in Luke 24, uh, there's uh, the story of two disciples of Christ, followers of Christ. We call them uh, the travelers to the, on the road to Emmaus. They were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on the Sunday after the crucifixion. And while they had heard that there was rumblings about Christ rising from the dead, they weren't convinced about that. And so they were walking home depressed. You might say they were in a state of gloom as they discussed all the events of the previous days. They had hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped he was the promised Messiah. As they are walking along the road, a stranger comes up to them. We know the stranger is Jesus, but they were prevented from recognizing him. And they discuss these matters with him, still in sadness at their unrealized hope. And then in Luke twenty four twenty seven, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That must have been amazing. Here it is, Jesus, they don't know he's Jesus yet, but he's opening the scriptures to these, four, these formerly uh, gloomy disciples, going through each book, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, on to Joshua and Judges, the story of Ruth, Nehemiah building the wall, Ezra reading the scriptures, then on to Psalms, where Psalm 22 speaks of the crucifixion, then the Proverbs, and then finally to the prophets, beginning with Isaiah. And when Jesus got to chapters 52 and 53, Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord, this Messiah, this suffering and dying and rising servant, having victory. But before that, Isaiah speaks about one born, 
the subject of our time today, Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, for us to, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Can you imagine the, the excitement and the joy that those two disciples experienced? Having the scriptures with the, which they would have understood with an Old Testament mind opened up to them. Speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus. Speaking how his kingdom would come and how the Messiah would provide salvation. Those two believers on the road learned that Jesus was raised, was the one who bore our, our iniquities, that it was Jesus, Isaiah called the Prince of Peace. But before Jesus opened the scriptures to the two brothers on that road, what would they have thought Prince of Peace means? Well, they would have thought uh, in terms of expectations. And there were two expectations they would have had in their hearts. The first was that the Prince of Peace would be a prince. Seems logical. Now, not like a prince like Prince Charles, for example, who uh, when uh, Queen Elizabeth does die at some point, that he'll inherit the throne after she dies. This prince, this prince of peace, is the one from God. God's chosen who is given the throne by God based on what the prince does. And you see what he does in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. The prince would rule in the line of David. He would rule in David's place, and somehow his rule would be everlasting. <clears throat> and while the Emmaus disciples would not likely have said it this way, theologian, theologians call this expectation an expectation of the ideal Davidic king. This king would defeat Israel's enemies and deal with the darkness. And we see that expectation in the passage we read a few minutes ago in Isaiah 9, 2 through 5, and that almost that entire passage has to do with the defeat of Israel's enemies. But it also has to do with restoring hope out of the darkness. So it was both a, a uh, defeat of enemies and it was a defeat of the gloom that they were experiencing. This ideal Davidic king would not only defeat Israel's enemies, he would usher in the perfect rule for God's people. Isaiah 9, 7. <clears throat> of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So these two followers of Jesus wouldn't have been all wrong. But one thing they missed until Jesus opened it up to them was the path that this ideal Davidic king would take. Jesus helped him to see that. And when he gets to Isaiah chapter 53, he would have revealed this to them. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity on him, the iniquity of us all. And then in verses 10 and 12, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, had, he, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This ideal Davidic king would defeat sin by his death. He would die for his people, taking on their iniquity, and he would rise again in order to make intercession for them. This is the prince that they expected. Their second expectation would have to do with the idea of peace and what the ideal Davidic king brings. Nate showed us the wonderful counselor who brings perfect counsel to his people. Caleb showed us that he brings the forgiveness of sin that only the mighty God can bring. And then last week, Caleb showed us that Jesus, as everlasting father, reveals God, making him known to us. Finally, the prince brings shalom. So what do you think of when you think of the word or hear the word peace? You might think of the absence of war, certainly. You might think of the absence of conflict as in a marriage or between parents and children. You might think that peace is the absence of your boss. I thought I thought that a few times. You might think that peace is the absence of children. Please, kids, go away. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I need peace. Every parent knows that. Amen. Amen. You might think of uh, the absence of those weird family members. When I was young, our family would uh, go over to our grandma's house for Christmas dinner. It was a big family. It was like 40 people. And there was a couple of strange potatoes in that group. <laughs> Nancy got to go to uh, some of those, uh, those gatherings before my grandmother was unable to do it. And she would, uh, you can ask her sometime, ask her to tell you about our weird family member, uh, Elvis. And yes, that's what he, who he thought he was. You might think peace is the absence of worry or the absence of fear or the absence of disease, or the absence of pressure. You might think peace is the day after Christmas. Uh, For me, it's January 3rd, because January 2nd is when everything gets taken down and put away for another year. You might think peace is is rest. All of these conditions, including rest, are defined at least in part by the absence of something. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Peace. Many Jews today use shalom as a greeting, where we might greet someone by saying, how are you? Jews will say, shalom. Or they might say a related word, ma which means, what is your peace, or how is your peace? Shalom can mean the absence of something like war or disease, but its fullest meaning is not the absence of something. The root meaning of shalom is to be whole. It means completeness. And it's very often used in terms of relationships. Psalm 41.9, David complains about a friend who has turned on him. He says, even my close friend, the Hebrew says, even the friend of my shalom, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Shalom is a state of being at ease, both internally and externally. The Lord is the provider and the source of shalom. Psalm 4.8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. The Emmaus fellows would have understood shalom also as covenantal. Ezekiel speaks of that. In Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-six, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in, the midst, in their midst forevermore. But most fully, as we've already mentioned, shalom means sound relationships 
between humans and God and is everlasting. Isaiah 54.10 For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Biblical shalom is the condition of wholeness in our lives in the way God intends and that which he provides. One definition of the meaning of shalom that I like comes from Rooted, where it says shalom means wholeness, unity, integration, and harmony. Everything as God intended it. The two on the Emmaus Road before they met Jesus expected the Messiah to be the ideal Davidic king that would defeat all of Israel's enemies and establish Israel as the preeminent nation on earth. He would also be the perfect prince of peace, the one who would bring shalom to God's people, a state of wholeness for the community in complete relationship with God. So as we said before, these two fellows on the road uh, were not all wrong about it. But until Jesus revealed it to them, they didn't fully grasp what this prince of peace would do to bring peace. They didn't fully understand the full meaning of what peace means until Jesus revealed it. And this leads us to consider the peace of Christ, the prince of peace what he brings to us. Peace with God. Translators of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, which was called the Septuagint, that was translated around 200 B.C. or so, primarily used the Greek word irene to translate shalom. In every letter of Paul's that we have in the New Testament, he used the greeting grace and peace to you. A couple of times he used grace, mercy, and peace to you. The Greek word he chose was irene to translate peace. Given that, you might expect the meaning of peace in the New Testament would be similar to the meaning of peace in the Old Testament. And you would be correct, but there's more to it. Christ brought peace to Jews and Gentiles and peace between humans and God. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, Therefore, remember that at one time you, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's, uh, the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In this passage, Paul demonstrates what was accomplished by the blood of Christ. Among what he cites there is that the separation between Jews and Gentiles, and that is really the separation of uh, God's people, or of, of, of Gentiles from God's people, was eliminated by Christ for those who have faith in him. The separation between God and people was eliminated for those who have come to faith in Christ. We have access to the Father through the Spirit. We are fellow citizens in the household of God. We are being built together into a dwelling place 
with God and we are reconciled to God. All of this is a result of the work of Christ and the peace, the irene, he bought with his blood. But there's more. In Romans 5, 1 through 11, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Before Christ, before you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, before you placed your faith in him, we were actively opposed to God. And it's not just a passive hostility, but it is the work of Christ that brought us into a relationship, into a relationship of peace with God where we have attained access into that grace, as Paul says, in which we stand. Because of the peace Christ brought, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We did nothing for this peace. And in fact, while we were still sinners, while we were still opposed to God, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. As a result, we are justified by Christ's blood. We are saved from his wrath and reconciled to God. In Romans eight twelve through 16 we are adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters, making us brothers and sisters with Christ and co-heirs, co-heirs with him in God's family. And take note that this peace is not dependent on the things we might normally associate with peace. That is the absence of something. Paul says that indeed we, we rejoice in our sufferings because of what the suffering will produce in us. The peace we have with God is not impacted by suffering. This peace we have in Christ with God is the fullest expression of shalom. We are at peace with God. The relationship we have with him is as it should be, as he intended. But there's more. Shortly before he was arrested, Jesus was speaking his last words to the disciples. They didn't get much of what he said until after the resurrection, but one thing they might have begun to understand or to understood that would have been is, is found in John 16, 31 through 33. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered each to his own home. And will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Even when they are running away. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus acknowledged that we will have trouble while we're living in this world. Everything from our cars breaking down. I had to uh, take my car to the shop this week. To the recent experience of a couple... In China, his name is Chang Yuchun. 
Her name is Li Chinil, who were sentenced to seven years in a Chinese prison for selling Bibles and Christian literature. Even there, while they suffer, they are at peace with God. Not because of their circumstances, but because what God has done through Jesus Christ. After the resurrection, while the disciples were hiding and in fear for their lives, Jesus appeared to them, John 19, 20 and 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even though even so I am sending you. The peace of Christ, of Christ brings comfort, even in fear. And actually, it is his presence that brings that peace. Jesus lives in believers through the Holy Spirit. Christ is in you. He's in me. And because of that, the Holy Spirit can minister and does minister God's peace to you. And in this peace, we are sent into the world to speak the peace about the peace we have in Christ. <clears throat> Such speaking at times will cause some people or even governments to try and make our lives difficult. We will have trouble in this world, but while in this world, all those who have put faith in Christ are at peace with God regardless of circumstances. And there's a whole lot more we could say about that, but there's one more thing I want to point out. <clears throat> the peace we've been talking about in, in one sense is a, uh, is a theological peace. It's a practical, or a, or I'm sorry, not a practical, but a uh, positional peace. Christ died for us. He was raised again. We put faith in Christ. We are at peace of God, whether we feel it or not. So we are positionally at peace with him. But it has that peace, that Irene, has a practical, real-world benefit for believers. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can be anxious about a whole lot of things, about our children, about our finances, about jobs, about how we're going to accomplish some difficult task, about some conflict that we're having, <clears throat> about any of the things we talked about earlier. In all those situations and more, we are positionally at peace with God, but Paul tells us in Philippians 4 here that we can know peace in our daily lives and know it personally. And the way to access this peace that surpasses understanding is to pray. To make our requests known to God, who, by the way, knows our requests before we ask. And take note here, <clears throat> it's not the answers to our requests that bring this peace that passes understanding. It's making the request that allows us to know God's peace in this way. My wife would tell you uh, that I can be obsessive about some things. Um, I would say she's wrong, but she probably isn't. Uh, one of the things I do obsess over is finances, which is a little weird when you consider uh, that several years ago, and I've talked about this before, uh, we were in some deep financial trouble, and God took care of it. 
and, and I will say here that God didn't take care of it in a, some sort of miraculous, you know, boom, the sky's open or a bunch of gold fell at our feet. It wasn't anything like that. But God did take care of the problem. And the problem was the kind of problem where, uh, at the time, we woke up one day, one day and said, there's nothing we can do. We had run out of options. <coughs> but God took care of it. So you'd think that having experienced that, I wouldn't be so obsessed over finances. But uh, I am. And we're coming to the end of the year. Nancy will tell you that I've been spending a lot of time in front of my computer looking at financially financially at next year and beyond. And I've got my budgets and spreadsheets laid out. and I've been looking at every possible scenario that I can think of and what we can do or what we might do or should do to take care of things, to make sure things come out all right. And uh, while I was doing this, I was preparing for the sermon. And a couple of weeks ago, I was obsessing over the finances. And God reminded me of this passage in Philippians 4. So I made my request known to God. The requests were that the finances would work out not according to my plan, but to his, and that I would learn to trust God and to be faithful. Now, all these requests haven't, don't have answers yet. Next year hasn't happened yet. Issues with finances and decisions to make are still going to come. But I am learning to trust God in this, and I'm endeavoring to be faithful to him with our finances and his strength. And I can tell you that I do have that peace about our finances, the peace that passes understanding, because nothing has changed between the time I prayed and today, but I do have that peace. It's this peace that passes understanding that we have confident access to, and it is this peace, this irene, this shalom that we have with God. This is what the Prince of Peace, whose first advent we celebrate this time of year, provides and is yours or can be yours. As we think about this, I'd like to suggest a few things for you to to consider. First of all, I think it would be really useful for any everyone to sit down and meditate on Romans chapter 8. And when I say meditate, I mean sit down and read it. And then read it again. And then read it once more, slowly. And to consider at each verse and each line what it is that God has provided for you. Now, the word peace isn't used in that chapter, but when you read what God has provided, it's going to be hard for you to know anything but peace because of what God has done. second thing I'd suggest is, uh, I said in another sermon that uh, we should learn to practice the presence of God. I encourage you today to practice the peace of God. Live as though you are at peace with him, whether or not you feel it. Live as if you are because you are at peace with God. Remember that God through Christ provided the peace you have with him can never be taken away from you. Worship him for that. Thirdly, I encourage you to make your request known to God. When you don't understand God, when you don't feel God's peace, when when you're concerned about something or frustrated with somebody or you don't know how to make decisions about something, Perhaps you're in conflict with somebody. Make your request known to God. And I can tell you that when you make the request known to God, that the circumstance won't change, at least not immediately. But if you truly make your request known and you truly trust him with it, you'll know God's peace. And then lastly, <clears throat> I've been speaking about this peace with God, and I, and I can't uh, 
go on without saying that if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, you can't know God's peace. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet, you are not at peace with God. If you haven't placed uh, your faith in Christ yet, you can't know the peace that passes understanding. You can't know God's peace either positionally or practically. But you can know it. And you can know his salvation for you by acknowledging your need of him and placing your faith in him. How do you do that? Well, the Gospel of John helps us with that. John 1, 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all that receive, who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, <clears throat> nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> the way you place your faith in Christ is to receive him by believing in him. A fellow came to Jesus one time, and he said, uh, he said uh, Jesus, how do, we do, how do we work the works of God? He was asking, what do I need to do? What action do I need to take? What, what work do I need to do? What commandments do I need to obey? What rituals do I have to do in order to do what God wants me to do. Jesus replied, believe in the one whom God has sent. We can't do anything to come to Christ, but he's done it all. What we can do, if you will, is to believe. So if you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet, I would encourage you to do that today, and I would encourage you to come talk to me or to Caleb or... Randy back there, or Jesse here, Mike, Pam Conklin. Come talk to us about it. If you're not sure, come talk to us about it. We'll be happy to talk with you and ask, answer your questions and, and help you know the peace that God has provided for you. Let's pray. Father, I do praise you for the peace that you give us. I praise you, Jesus, that you are our Prince of Peace. I worship you, Lord. We worship you, Lord, for providing this for us when we couldn't provide it ourselves, when there's no way that we can do anything to work some work that will cause you to love us. You already love us, and we know that because you died for us. So, Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you yet, I pray today. I pray that today would be the day they come to know you. And I pray, Father, for everyone here that uh, through your Holy Spirit, that you'd minister your peace to us. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to know the peace that passes understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.